Smith, and this is More Than One Lesson, episode 130. Uh, as you might have picked up from my voice, I'm a little bit under the weather, uh, and I'm sure you're thinking, wait a minute, wasn't he under the weather a month ago? Yes, I was, and I thought that would be enough for me to be immune for the next six months. That was not the case. Uh, I'm, I've been sick for the last two weeks, uh, and in fact, this... Uh, this episode was supposed to be recorded last week, but I was too sick to record, uh, and it is still hanging on, so I will occasionally be coughing off mic, and my uh, voice is a little bit hoarse, and I'm a little bit stuffed up, so I apologize for that. Hopefully, we can all just get through this, which is usually, I think, the attitude about any of our episodes. Uh, so, I will welcome in uh, this week's co-host, which is uh, Robert Hornack. Robert. Hi. How you doing? I'm good, and I'm here for you, Tyler. I appreciate that. You're welcome. You mean like if I want some chicken soup, you can make me some chicken soup? I mean emotionally. Soup? I, oh, mean, uh, okay. I mean chicken soup-wise, definitely. Okay, so like like chicken soup for the soul. Absolutely. Literally. Yeah. That's you. Yes. Just, you know, talking to you, I feel like, mm, I, I feel refreshed and I feel uh, like Healthier. 30% more healthy. Indeed. So, uh, Robert, how you doing? It's been, it's been like three weeks. It's so weird to this, this new system Yeah, because it means I'm going to see you and read a lot more often. Yeah, I'm fine. And since then, uh, things are fine. I don't know how yeah. to elaborate. Yeah. The there've been there constraints, been, but right. Fine. And, and there've been all kinds of uh, interesting career developments for you, which we won't go into. Right. Because, you we know, can, but we shouldn't, we, we shouldn't, we, you know, we'll, we'll wait. To, Nobody cares. We'll wait until it's official. Okay, good. And then it'll be very exciting. Uh, so, official or officially not. One way or one another, way we will know. In this uh, town, it's mostly officially not. Let's face it. That is true. Yes. But you never know. So, uh, I'm trying to think if there's any kind of announcements, uh, or anything, not that I can think of, so we're just going to jump right in. Let's do it. Uh, so this week, we are talking about a film that very few people have seen. Uh, ne- don't worry, next week we're, we're going to talk about Avengers Age of Ultron, all right? so Which everyone has seen. Which everyone has seen, so I try to alternate if I can. Uh, we are talking about Stephen Knight's Lock. With an E. L-O-C-K-E. Right? Did I say that? I'm very bad at spelling things uh, like John aloud. Like John Locke. Exactly. Both John Locks. Indeed. That's mm-hmm. right. It took me when when the sh- when you're referring to the uh you're well, partially referring to the character in the show Lost, and it took me a long time <laughs> uh to realize like how many characters are named yes. are named directly after sure. uh philosophers. Mm-hmm. Um Desmond I think is named after one, right? Or at least uh, his last name is Hume, I think. There you go. And uh 
and yeah, and John Locke, and then he goes by Jeremy Bentham, right? Like that's a that's a name that he, that Locke goes by. Uh, wow, you really like an alias or how something do you like have that? that. Right on the tip of your brain. I don't know. I remember stuff. Huh. So I was thinking the other day uh, that I have no use uh, like useful skills, um, but I can do that. So you know, it's a useful skill. You're using it right now. Hmm. Hmm. I guess that is true. Does that make it the fact that it is being used? Does that make it useful? I don't know. I'm straining to validate it. But, yeah, yeah. But That's fine. That's fine. I like it. It's a good this, skill. I don't have it. I can't think of actors' names, titles, directors. I got to have it all in front of me. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's. Uh, yeah, it's a thing that has um, that has stuck with me ever since I was a kid, and I think one of the first instances that I have of remembering all of something that's that was movie related i think for a while and maybe even now i could name every marine in aliens wow um even characters that don't have lines you know and when you recite the names do you recite them in order of their demise i probably could hmm yeah hang on a minute wait that's that's less useful <laughs> than what you've already demonstrated that's true but now I it up. now i am intrigued do it okay let's see here uh, I can't. So they go you, in. The they go into the. Uh, they go into the facility, and then Dietrich is the first one to go out. Mm-hmm. And then a lot of. And then a lot of. A lot of them die at once. There's <laughs> where's Basky and Frost and Apone and Crow, and then as they're leaving, uh, that's when Drake gets acid on his face, Yeesh. and then. Uh, Spunkmeyer and Pharaoh die in the plane. Good grief, man. And then when, and then it's, and then Hudson goes down and then Vasquez and Gorman die together. Wow. I'm stunned here. I don't, so. I don't know that I, I don't know that I can say anything else the rest of this podcast episode because you've proven that you know everything. I could be wrong. Now, when you say everything, I mean everything. I have listed the space, uh, the colonial marines and aliens and the order in which they have died. For you to <laughs> extrapolate that I know everything from that, mm-hmm. I think is very generous on your part. It's your show. It sure is. Uh, yeah, and that's the thing is, you know, after eight years of podcasting, it's, it's, I have no illusions about what I'm good at, uh, which is nothing uh, oh, except, re- except talking into a microphone. We should talk and about that's this. Debatable. Mm. What's up? What's going on? Hi. Hi. Hey guys, what's, what's going on? I don't know. Um, so yeah, we're talking about, as I said, Stephen Knight's lock that came and that led to a discussion, John Locke, what? Yes. which the goddess into colonial Marines. So, uh, now, so the film written and directed by Stephen Knight starring Tom Hardy and then the voices of a number of, of actors, uh, I didn't know anything about the movie when I saw it. Nor did I. All I knew was that uh, it was getting a little bit of critical, uh, when it came to like awards, mm-hmm. it was getting some critics awards for best actor. And I was like, what? Like, this guy is not, Tom Hardy for this movie, Locke, I don't know anything about it. Yeah. He's not on the radar at all. What is it? 
And then I looked into it and I was like, oh, okay, now I'm very intrigued. Right. It, and, I didn't know anything about it except for the fact that it took place in one location, his car. Yeah. For the most part, like 98% of the movie is in his car. And I thought, oh no, I saw a telephone booth or whatever that was called. Phone booth. Phone booth. It was awful. And I, I was like, the, the I think phone done. booth is pretty good, actually. Or the elevator movie that M. Night Shyamalan did, which I did not see. Devil, which people have said I should talk about on this show, but is I think it? I'm going to skip hmm. it. We'll see it. Why don't we see it? Okay. It, it, that gave me one of our Halloween Times episodes. Okay. So, you and me are going to watch Devil. Ugh. <laughs> what was I the movie last time you were going to, like, we have to watch this? Oh, it was Babadook. Yeah, that one. Which I've seen since I've seen you last. Oh, really? I love that movie. It's great. Yeah, you, me, and Reed are going to talk about that. Yeah, I think a great double feature, by the way, would be uh, The Babadook and Harvey. Uh, I have already discussed Harvey on the show. You have on this show? Yes. Where was I? Uh, the companion, it was the companion film for happy go lucky, which I have not seen. It's wonderful. I'll see it. No, the companion film for Babadook will be forbidden planet. Oh, that's right. Right. So, which I love, which is monsters of the id. Mm, indeed. Monsters of the id. Perfect. Yeah. That's one of my favorite, uh, sci-fi movies. It's a good one. But that's a tangent. What were indeed. you saying? Uh, oh, right. So. Yeah, I don't know how, how, man, how do we get on that? I, I, it's my fault. I should say, everybody, I have been away from podcasting for a while. Uh, last night I recorded some BP and yeah, hey man, I, I was no just, excuses. I mean, I don't mean excuses. I mean, you don't have to, you don't have to apologize. No apologies. No explanation necessary. There you go. Okay. No, no caveats. That couldn't be further from no excuses, which holds my feet to the fire. And then one and then the other is very forgiving. Uh, so yeah, Locke, as, as Robert mentioned, Locke, it all takes place in this character's car. It's not necessarily in real time, but it's not far off. And he is, uh, speaking via, you know, Bluetooth to mm-hmm. various people in his life, uh, whether it be his wife or people, uh, in his job or whatever. And what it, the, the basic story, and I'm sure listeners, if again, as always, if you've, if you're listening to this, I assume you, that you've seen the film, but, um, he is, uh, driving to a hospital that is two a couple hours away because, this is a man who is married, has a couple of kids, but then one day, you know, uh, well, about nine months ago, I guess, uh, he was on a job elsewhere and met this lonely woman and kind of almost out of pity wound up sleeping with her and then she got pregnant and she's having the baby and he is driving to where she is because he doesn't want her to be alone and he's taking responsibility for his actions. But he has also not told his wife that this is a thing that has, ha- that has occurred. The baby and was two months premature, I believe. Which is is it pre- two months premature? Two months okay. premature. And he tells her on the phone at one point, I was going to tell you and I thought I still had two months. That's right. That's right. Yes, yes. So, um, uh, yeah. And, and then of course it's also the, the night before a big thing going on with his job. Yeah. And so he is, so he has to break the news to his wife via Bluetooth in the car, not face to face or anything like that. And then he also has to talk to his boss and he has to talk his coworkers through what they're doing as he is headed towards this hospital to be with this woman that by the way, he has no actual romantic interest in. He's not going to leave his, he's not planning on leaving his wife. She is not, 
she's not his mistress, right? You know, she's just this woman that is now alone and in a bad situation because of the thing that he did. And so he's trying to take responsibility for mm-hmm. that. And, uh, a, a pretty common, not common, but, a, a a constant running thing is that, uh, this character, when he was young, his father was a, a drunk and did not embrace responsibility. And I think wound up just leaving mm-hmm. his family. And that is a big motivator for him to do, you know, the right thing and to, um, to not necessarily embrace responsibility, but at least acknowledge that like there are consequences to actions and he's going to face them. And so there's a lot going on in the movie, yeah. uh, emotionally. And, you know, Tom Hardy is on screen pretty much all the time, except for, you know, cutaways to headlights and stuff like that. Um, and when I watched it, I thought, okay, yes, I can absolutely understand why he's, you know, getting some critics awards for best actor. I feel like it's a bummer that he wasn't, more in contention for the actual like Oscar or, or, or anything like that. I think it was just a film that just wasn't seen. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah. And it's, uh, and we can talk more about like the technical elements as well, because while, while there are certainly other characters, uh, to have only one guy on screen in a car, even though the car is moving. So there is constant motion. Like, the fact that the film for me was never boring, but I was always like just so enveloped in what I was watching. Like that's really an achievement. So I wound up really responding to the movie in every possible way, creatively, emotionally, spiritually, obviously. Um, so that's my experience with it, uh, initially. Uh, what about yourself? Cause I, well, I, I believe you suggested this as a possible topic. Uh, you had asked me like, what movies have I seen recently? And I said, well, the ones that I, I would, could talk about, I believe, or that I liked were, and this movie was included in that. And I, Aubrey and I had just watched it maybe a couple of nights before that. And I was like you, I didn't, I didn't know what to expect content wise or plot wise. Um, all I knew was the fact that he was in a car the whole time. I'm like, this is a stunt movie. It's a gimmick movie. It's yeah. like, I, so I didn't have a whole lot of respect for it going into watching it. Um, but then, uh, you know, I did. And I was, I was like you, they, the writers, it's a combination of the writing and his acting that really just makes it sore. I believe it. The, the idea, some of these things feel like things that if you threw into a typical movie, they might feel like too much. Yeah. Um, for instance, uh, he has these things that are like these giant things that get in the way of uh, of his success, if you will, of yeah. getting to London, or uh, just I guess things that kind of make it make it seem more tense, like it adds tension to the movie. For instance, I mean, right? Small, you you from, can sort of see some of the writerly stuff where it's just like, yeah. okay, let's add more stakes. Like you can see that like the small to the big, like yeah. the, the first is that he's got a cold much like you today. Yeah. Um, or for the last two months, apparently, apparently. Um, so, I mean, at the beginning of the movie, he's like, he makes his first Bluetooth phone call. By the way, it feels to me like a, like a two, like an hour and a half ad for Bluetooth technology. Cause it's just like, it works perfectly the whole time. Well, and that's, yeah, that's one of the other things I like about it is, I like any movie that understands the role that technology plays in daily life. Like it's Hmm. like in a way, this is a film very much about technology, but not at all about technology. Yeah. 
like it's just there. This film would not be possible in the way that it is even four years ago. Right. You know? And so it's something I find fascinating. Like years ago, uh, there was a movie called four Forty Four: last day on earth. Uh, and it's basically, it's, uh, they, people have figured out when the world is going to end hmm. and people are just dealing with that. And Willem Dafoe's the main character. And he spends a lot of time on Skype talking with people, hmm. you know? And it's like, yeah, that wouldn't have been possible a few years ago. He would have been, he would have spent time on the phone, but now like people want to see each other's faces, especially in a situation like that. And so like, I don't know. I like when a movie embraces the way we use technology now mm-hmm. without, uh, overemphasizing it. But yes, I, I, I understand what you mean. Sorry. Go on. No, it's just that these, I, I appreciate the fact that some of these things are in the movie in terms of ratcheting up mm-hmm. the tension. Like uh, the cold thing, and then he keeps going on and on about this at the beginning about how this is the biggest poor in uh, in in Europe right now. It's he's a a, a contractor for like pouring c- concrete yeah. at large facilities, like for building buildings, like foundations for buildings, yeah. and that kind of thing. And this is, in fact, as as he said, and his boss says whenever he calls his boss, this is the biggest poor that isn't a military concrete poor or a industrial something or other. So anyway, yeah. it's like this huge thing. So it's like the biggest possible job that he could possibly have at that moment. Right. It's like, oh boy. Well, but it feels right in this movie. And the fact that at a certain point in the movie, he uh, he needs to he needs his coworker who is back at the office the night before this giant deal is going to happen to go through the binder with all the phone numbers and all the names and stuff. He has a contact to kind of validate that things are going to happen when they have to happen the next morning. Yeah. And he looks over and he's got the binder in his car in his passenger seat. And he's like, well, that feels a little trite. Like if you, if I was telling you the story, but when you're watching the story, um, and also the fact that the baby, he's also communicating with this woman who barely knows. And over the course of the movie, you find out that the baby's got these complications, like the the cord is wrapped around its neck and it might not live and they need his signature or something in order to make the, let allow the doctor to go in or something. So all these things are just ratcheting up and it's so much that it feels like on paper, like it's, it's just too much. But in this movie, because of the gimmick, the gimmick almost allows you to sort of like glide over your criticism of how big those things are and you appreciate it because you are just staring at one guy for an hour and a half it's like thank you for giving me something else to be worried about it's a melodrama that is somehow undercut by the minimalism of the conceit perfect way to put it exactly but uh, like i said it's a it's a it's a combination of 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 that sort of confidence in the writing to go that far uh married to uh tom hardy Mm -hmm. who i've only seen in a couple of things uh i saw him and i haven't I haven't always been super thrilled with what I've seen him in. Like I, I think of him as an intense actor who will always bring, and there's a lot of intensity in this film as well, but like I think of him in the film Bronson, which he's great in. And then I think of him in uh, as Bane in the dark Knight rises and, and a few that. other things here and there, like Tinker Taylor soldier spy. Yeah. And I remember not thinking, thinking he was fine in that nothing mm-hmm. particularly great, but just thinking that he's just kind of always, and I saw him in Warrior. Like it just that he's always like this brooding kind of guy. Mad Max. Mad Max. Yes. Like I don't know. It's uh, this this and, and I don't think I had necessarily written him off as an actor, but it was he was an actor that I was like, okay, I think I got it. 
Like, I think yeah. I get what you are. Yeah. Uh, and then this film actually got me seeing him in a different way. Oh, absolutely. From the very first time he speaks into the Bluetooth, he's speaking very calmly. Yeah. Even though everything is going against him, and he's making probably the biggest stupid mistake of his life, conceivably, in some... Yeah, if you look respect. at it a certain way. But he's uh, he's extremely calm to everyone, except yeah. for very key moments. Like when he find, actually when he sees the binder, I think it's about 45 minutes in, and it's the first time he just kind of explodes. He gets off the phone, he says, I'll, I'll get back to you. As soon as he hangs up, he's like swearing and like hitting the steering wheel and all this yeah. stuff being histrionic in a way that he had not been up to that point, but he's extremely believable and almost annoying in his ability to remain calm in the face of his wife breaking down in the face yeah. of his, his boss yelling at him for being the best employee he's ever had, except for tonight. Yeah. Um, his son, like, why aren't you home watching the game with us? You told us you were going to come. We bought your favorite sausages and we're wearing the team shirt. Yeah. I'm waiting on you, dad. And he's like, well, I won't be home tonight. Yeah. I'm like, Get upset, dude. Like, be but, humble but or you something. See, but you do see, like, I mean, there are times when he is still being very calm, but you do see that, like, his eyes are, oh yeah, are, you know, moist, and that yeah. he is. Well, like, he's got a cold. He's still. Well, there's that. Yes, <laughs> I guess. But like, he's he's feeling all of these things, yeah. but he cannot. He can't let himself feel these things because he'll explode if he does. Mm-hmm. So, like, he has to seem. He has to be unnaturally calm well uh, and i I don't want to make it seem like i i don't appreciate his style of acting in this movie i think it's great Mm -hmm. and i think if he was like blowing up for 90 minutes that would be tedious and i wouldn't finish the movie the first time yeah uh but he's he's so super calm i think because as he says many times in the movie i've made my decision yeah and he's he is solid in his decision and he's i'm this is what i've decided this is what i'm gonna do this is where I'm going. I'm going down this road right now and I'm not turning around. Yeah. I have a responsibility and I have to make good on that responsibility. This is what I'm, he just keeps saying this over and over again. Yeah. So that, that allows him to be as calm as he is, despite the fact that now everybody he knows hates him. Yeah. There's a certain, there's almost a sense of resignation to his performance, which is like, it doesn't matter how much people yell at me. It doesn't Mm -hmm. matter how angry people are at me. I have made my decision. So it doesn't matter. It doesn't even matter how I feel right now. The decision's been made. I'm already on the road. Right. So let's keep going. You know, it's it's almost like that's the one constant in a, mm-hmm. in a movie full of variables. And so it's like any he, any he clings to that because it's the one anchor he has. The yeah. one anchor he has is the decision he has made. Mm-hmm. And it's a what I like about the performance is that the character himself is performing. Uh, it would have been easy to look at the choices that Tom Hardy is making and just see a certain art of, uh, I remember, uh, something that I go back to over and over again. I once had an acting teacher who talked about seeing the strings, uh, with certain performances. Uh, and in a way I can see the strings here, but they're not the string, but it's not Tom Hardy pulling the strings. It is Ivan Locke pulling the strings. Mm-hmm. He is making the decision to be very calm. He is making the decision to be very deliberate and careful in how he approaches things. And both in this particular instance, but also just the way he has approached his life. Like you get the impression, like he's a very deliberate person uh in his life and so so yeah it's 
it's weird. The performance seems a little stylized to me, you know, like it doesn't seem like the most naturalistic performance. Um, does that, well, it's like when I think of a naturalistic performance, I think of somebody that's very comfortable in their own skin and somebody that I could even conceive of meeting in everyday life. Uh, and it's possible to have a naturalist naturalistic performance in even the most terrifying villains, you know, um, like in my opinion, the, the most horrendous villain in all of film history is Noah Cross from Chinatown. Wow. That's true. Uh, and John Huston mm-hmm. is a personable guy who's like kind of, it seems almost curmudgeonly and, and certainly grandfatherly. Have a seat, Jake. Yeah. And just very like, you know, uh, well, I'm not, I'm not going to start quoting him, but just like, it's, it's a very, that's a very lived in real mm-hmm. naturalistic performance. Whereas the way Tom Hardy plays Locke again, like he's very controlled, very restrained. I can see the strings, but I'm okay with it. That, it, that seems to be a thing we keep going back to, whether it be in his performance or in certain choices that the writer made in a different context we would have a problem with it, but somehow maybe the way the film is shot, the way it's put together, the concept of the film, the, for, I don't like to use the term, but the gimmick mm-hmm. of the film, let's use the word, I, I use the word conceit, the conceit of the film, which is that it's all going to be in one in this car. Uh, that seems to, it does seem to undercut in the best possible way, things that I would otherwise have a problem with. And that includes his performance. Could it be that, uh, because it is in one location and it's just one guy that we're without thinking about it, our brains are a creative critique of the, of what we're looking at is more in a play gear, which we, which we tend to allow those things more in plays. Plays tend to be broader, you know, and acting tends to be broader because of the kind of venue that it is. I think that's very possible. And, um, yeah, because I did have the have the thought of like, you know, this could very this could be a play, sure, of a guy just sitting there, and then you could have people's voices. You might even have them like the the actor walk on stage and provide like the conversation. But I thought that'd be a very boring play visually. Like it's so interesting that this has a very the, uh, theater, a very stage quality, but it is undeniably a movie. Right. It is very cinematic. Mm-hmm. You ca- I don't think you could tell this in a play format mm-hmm. because p- it would it would grow stagnant visually. And I think that's fascinating that this you know that this film is so <laughs> sorry, my wife is making a shake and it's very loud. It's awesome. Um hope it's for me. But uh I'll I'll shoot her a text and say, "Hey, bring Robert some of the shake the, the loud shake you're making." <laughs> um but, uh, but yeah, and I think that's one of the things that I, that I really respect about this movie is that it's almost like it's a little miracle that it works, that it works so well. Yeah. Um, well, visual, you keep talking about visually, but we should describe if you haven't seen it already. It, to me, it reminded me a lot of like a Michael Mannish kind of slickness, the, the, sure. sh- the shots of the, the car going down the road and yeah. his POV through the windshield is just very, and the, the way the lights look, they're blurred, and yeah. it just feels very um, almost. Uh, s- s- what's the word I'm looking for? It just it just seems Michael Mannish to me, like it's yeah. a heightened reality outside the car. Yeah. So that makes it kind of okay. 
if it's a slightly heightened reality with regard to the kind of things that are th- being thrown at him to, with regard to the strings that we can see in his acting. Yeah. All those things seem kind of of a piece with the way the outside world looks, which is kind of not fake, but just heightened. Yeah. Beautiful. I mean, every, everything is heightened in a, like in a film that seems like it shouldn't be, mm-hmm. whether it's it be his, th- his performance, the things that he's going through, the number of things he's going oh my through gosh, and the way it's shot. It's so interesting. Like everything is operating like one or two levels above reality, but the core of it is so real and mm-hmm. so human and so relatable that it feels like you're watching. Uh, sorry, there are times like when I think about it, sorry, that's not right. When I like emotionally remember the movie, if that makes any sense, when I emotionally remember the movie, I think of like a very down to earth human story, yes. which it is. But when I think about it and I think about the artistic choices made by the director and by the, uh, by Tom Hardy and that sort of thing, I realize like, no, this is not a down-to-earth meat and potatoes story. Like, he's added all these things in, quite possibly because he was afraid that it would become boring and, and all that kind of thing. And if that's the case, then I would say, uh, mission accomplished. I don't think the film is boring at all. Um, it is, like, I think the worst thing I could level at it is that occasionally it's a little bit repetitive, but even then it's repetitive in a way that I think it would be in this mm-hmm. situation where, like, you know, him trying to get his wife on the phone mm-hmm. after he's broken this terrible news to her. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and then she won't come to the phone, so it's like, okay, I'll, I'll try and call her back. And then he tries again, and same thing happens. Like, it's like, well, this is a little repetitive. It's like, yeah, it would be. She wouldn't want to talk to, like, nothing about this escalates. is good for her either. Every and it does it, escalate. And yes. Every time it kind of loops back around to one of the things he's juggling, it escalates a little bit. Like, for instance, he does call her and talk to her a couple of times, and she says kind of the same thing every time. Right. But what's on the line each time is different, meaning what's on the line for him. Yeah. Um, she's clearly on the line with him. Yeah. But the things that are on the line in terms oh, of his job it. and his relationships. Um for instance, when he calls once, it's because he, not because he wants to continue to apologize to her, but it's because he needs a number that's in a pocket and yeah. a coat in the closet. And she has it, but now she has this weapon against him. Like, yeah. what, you need a number to close down a street? What about our our lives? Yeah. Isn't that more important? And at the end of the conversation, uh, that scene, she says, do you still need the phone number? Do you still want the phone number? And he goes, yes. And she clicks, she hangs up because he never, he didn't learn yeah. <laughs> that he, that, you know, what is priority. Uh, which is even as you're whole, mentioning this, like my, my own stress level oh my is gosh, going the movie, up. I watched it again. Uh, when we had to postpone, I thought, well, it's been a while now. I should watch it again. And it was the exact same experience the second time. I'm like, this is so tense. I, how is he going to get out of this? How is he going to, you know, uh, save this part yeah. of his life? This one decision that he's making is wrecking his job. It's wrecking his relationship with his children, which he's trying to avoid by doing it, which is the the dramatic irony at, right. at the kind of engine of the whole thing, if you will. It's a car. Um, and his wife, for goodness sake. I mean, the, probably the biggest responsibility he has in his life yeah. is actually his relationship to his wife. And what's he doing? He's using responsibility. This is Now we're treading on theme, sorry. But he's using... Uh, the, the word responsibility or the, what he believes is priority wise more a, a bigger responsibility for him at this moment to trump what is clearly 
supposed to be his biggest responsibility, which is his wife, his relationship with his wife and his family. And he's sacrificing it in order to make good on this thing that was a mistake. He's got to clear it up because his dad never would have. It's interesting that you, it's interesting that you put it that way because the way it is in a way, like it's because the way you're, the film is actually kind of divisive as far as how people respond to it and respond to the choice he's making. Mm-hmm. Some people think that the, the choice he's making is foolhardy that, that he camp. is. What was that? I'm in that camp. Yeah. And I don't think I am like, he's going to need to like, don't get me wrong. The way that he's breaking it to his wife is terrible, but like he did make a mistake and this woman is now stuck with it. And he could say like, it was one time. It's not my problem. She doesn't even really know who I am. Like this is this, if I choose, this is never going to come back to me. Right. And I can continue living my happy little life as though I never made this mistake. But then of course, that's just about me. This woman, meanwhile, has to raise this kid on her own. Mm -hmm. And this kid is not going to have a father and not going to understand what's going on. And so it's like, I don't think he's sacrificing his family. I think he's recognizing like there's no, there's no win here. So I've hurt, I'm hurting someone. And in this case, yes, I'm hurting my wife, but I'm also fessing up to what I've done. Which and he would have needed meantime, to do anyway, which he would have needed to do anyway without going all the way to London. Right. But that's the thing is like, th- this woman is also, I think the, the character, I think he also recognizes the type of woman that, he is dealing with that she is, you know, older and lonely and kind of emotionally fragile, Very and, emotional. you know, and the fact that the baby is coming early, like mm-hmm. now she's worried about, is the kid going to be alive? You know? And so like, she needs somebody there and he, I mean, he doesn't tell her like, she asks him like, do, do, you, do you, you love, love me? me? And he's like, I, I, I don't, you know, so how can I love you? I don't even know you. I, yeah. I knew you one night. Yeah. And we haven't talked in now seven months. Yeah. Until you told me that the baby's coming. And so, it's, and that's, I mean, that's a, that's such a rough thing, but it's also like, and that might be a thing that he's certainly, he doesn't love her, but like, I'm sure he's saying is like, well, at least I'm being honest, you know, but maybe in that moment, it's like, just tell her what she needs to hear. She's going to labor, I, you know, uh, watching the movie the first time I was with Aubrey. I don't believe that informed my, my feeling on the movie, but maybe it did. But the second time I had the same feeling and I was watching it alone is that, this decision that he's made is noble yeah. in, in and of itself. It's a very noble, it's what every man should do Yeah. in that scenario. He should be with the woman that he impregnated. I didn't know how to reform that sentence. Sure. That's such a weird word. Um, got pregnant that he got pregnant. So he's, he's doing the right thing. There's no question about it. He's doing the right thing. Yeah. But when it falls and who he's hurting on both sides of his life, meaning work and family. Yeah makes the decision to go that night the incorrect decision, even though it's a noble thing to do in and of itself. Because you have you have to weigh where your actual priority is responsibility wise, and that's your family. If you're if you if you're going to here I remember there's a moment I didn't know didn't didn't catch it the first time I saw the movie, but the second time he says to 
his boss. I think he's explaining like finally like why he's not coming to the thing. To, well, I I got this woman pregnant seven months ago. I've got to be there yeah. because because um, how did he put it? My because I know how it feels to come into this world alone. Yeah. And so this is like, he's finally getting to the point where he's saying this to his boss. He's telling his boss his private life now, yeah. which is strange because he hadn't up to that point. So this is his, un, his like truncated, completely boiled down reason for going. It's because my dad left me. The baby's not going to know. The, yeah. wo- the woman will know. The woman he declares a non-love for, um, I don't know you, I don't love you, I'm coming to you because I feel responsible for the baby. And the baby will know, will grow to know, or one day we'll find out, I guess is what he's afraid of, Yeah, that I wasn't there on the day he was born. And his mom could say, well, he had a family and you were two months early. I can understand why he didn't show up. But you know what? He did show up a week later. You know what? He did make good. Did you watch Parenthood? No. It's a total tangent, but there's like a character who has a, a kid that he doesn't know about. The woman tells him five years later, so he instantly becomes part of the life of this kid. Um, it's just a great show anyway. That's a total tangent. But the, the point is that he could still be a part of this kid's life. Maybe his wife doesn't want him to be a part of – he could maybe talk her into it. Sure. But to – on that night, the real reason – that he's going is because he needs to be better than the man who is dead. That's oh, his sure. dad. Sure. And he refuses to be like his dad to I the point that he destroys everything in his life in order to not become his dad. That's I think, the mistake. I think an argument could also be made from a practical standpoint that like if she loses the baby, which is a possibility, he doesn't want her to be alone when that happens, which I can understand, you know, and that's where you know, that's when, from a storytelling standpoint, mm-hmm. the idea of the kid being two months early is like, okay, so the kid is early so that it takes him by surprise. Mm-hmm. And suddenly he has to do this thing that he wasn't expecting he had right. to do. But then the kid being early also brings in these other questions that I'm not sure the screenwriter wanted us to ask, which is, is he concerned about the health of the baby? And the uh, the impact it will have on the mother if the baby's lost because two months early, like that, it might not go great. Well, it's, it's interesting the movie doesn't doesn't go into that. Uh, maybe right. there's not a way to given the the construct. But I think maybe maybe it doesn't go into it because that is not that was not the storytelling function of the kid coming early. Hmm. The kid coming early was oh shoot, I thought I had two more months. Now I, now I have to go do this, you know? Uh, and so I, I wouldn't be surprised if, if the writer director, Stephen Knight wrote it for that reason without really considering that there's this whole other possibility of something being wrong with the kid. Well, sure. He does mention the, the umbilical cord, like being like around the kid's and, neck and that's or something the real like that. Writer sin, if you want to call it that, yeah. is that he used the baby twice. He used the baby to come early in order to, instigate the the film we're watching yeah but also he complicates the pregnancy yeah which makes which ratchets up the yeah. tension and that and it's i'm not if it's, again it's one of those things i kind of appreciate because it makes it continually interesting watching it if if Locke had said that like if he's talking to his wife or his boss and he's like 
the kid is coming early. And if this doesn't go well, I don't want this woman to be all alone. If he had said that, would you be more in sympathy with his decision to go? I would, I believe I would be in that moment just because I'd be responding to his earnest. Yeah. Earnesty, his earnestness and his honesty. Let's just go ahead and say earnesty. There you go. His earnesty and honesty. Um, because it, it would be a level of, uh, uh, vulnerability that he had not shown up to that point. Yeah. And I would appreciate that. So on a, on, on that level, I, I would sympathize with him more, but, yeah. but the bigger picture is he's still doing what he's doing and he's made the decision. It's really interesting. Just tangent at the second, watching it the second time, there's this moment at the beginning when he's walking away from work. So he's walking away from where this poor, I guess is going to happen and, uh, <clears throat> gets into his car and he's at a stop sign or stop light and a stop sign. And uh, he's sitting there, and he's contemplating something. You don't, if you don't know the movie, which I did in the first time, I'm like, okay, does he just, just he's going home? I don't know where he's going. Um, and this truck pulls up behind him and blasts the horn and kind of breaks him out of his reverie. And at that moment, that's at that moment that he turns on his clicker and turns right. Yeah. So he was thinking about going forward, or he's deciding whether to go forward or turn right. And it's almost like watching his face again. Tom Hardy, Hardy really showing emotions in his eyes. There's almost a feeling like if that guy hadn't honked the horn, he wouldn't have been like raised into like this anger level of like, uh, okay, I'll just do it. And he clicks on the thing and he goes. Yeah. There's even a feeling of anger when he turns on the clicker. Like, I got to do this thing. And then he goes. So in the rest of the movie, that's when he makes the decision that he's not going to break from now is that moment when he turns mm-hmm. on the clicker. Um, I was going somewhere with that, but. I'm just intrigued by the fact that these little layers are laid in at the beginning that you don't understand. But then when you look at it again, it's like, yeah, he's, he is making a decision that he's not going to break no matter what, what brought me to this point though? Oh gosh, I don't remember. Who knows? Um, I mean, that's, that's the thing is the, the film is, there's such a complexity to it. I think that this idea that, you know, the, the truck or whatever, honking the horn it could be that he was going to sit there for maybe another minute and a half thinking about which direction he was going to go. And at the end, and he might've, he might've, everything might've gone the way it did anyway. But that horn means, no, you need to decide now Mm -hmm. in the same way. It's like, Hey, the kid's coming. You need to do this now. Like you don't have two more months to figure this out. You need to do this now. And, you know, there's just something, and it certainly does, ra- like, even in a mi- little moment like that, it's just like, it's another bit of pressure being put on yeah. him by someone else to, like, now. do this thing. Yeah. Um, no now. Yeah. Do it now. Yeah. You can't wait. Uh. The baby's coming now. The poor is happening now. Happening now. The game is on now. I don't think anything was broad statement. I don't think there's anything that someone could say to me, though, or point out in his performance that would change my mind on my feeling that his turning the clicker on to turn right was the was the worst dis- will turn out to be the worst decision of his life if indeed his wife doesn't let him come back which at th- by the end she's saying no and if his boss continues to say you're fired chicago says you can't come yeah. back um i i just i just don't i don't believe that being there that night at that moment is justified in any way given what he's giving up to do and, that. And you know, it's interesting. Um, and it's arguable whether he's actually giving it up. I think I, 
you know, I think people have different theories about how this is going to go. And I think it's to the credit of the film that you can imagine this character continuing after the movie is over. Um, and you can imagine these relationships continuing after the movie is over. Um, but, uh, for me, I think that he will not have his job. I think his wife will probably take him back. Um, cause w- the way she is saying no is so in the moment motivated by anger and you know, justifiable, of course, mm-hmm. uh, anger and frustration and, that sort of thing. Like, you know, because that's the thing is the decision he's making, like there's a sense of urgency on him, but it also affects other people like the coworker that he's on the phone with. And this coworker did not expect having to do all this stuff either. So now it's all on him. That guy is on so an, good. He's so he's great. Yeah. Immediately panicked. Andrew Scott, who plays, by the way, he plays a uh, Moriarty on uh, Sherlock. No, yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. Nice. And oh, so, good. I like that. Yeah, he's a very good actor. Uh-huh. And so, um, creepy. And so, like, this was a guy who's like, he was just going to have a couple drinks and then <laughs> come back for the poor tomorrow. Yeah. But now he has to do something way beyond his pay grade. So, like, now it's on him and it's on Locke's boss, mm-hmm. who's like, uh, I thought everything was great. And now this guy has to do this thing. And it's on his wife. It's like now she has decisions that she feels like she now she doesn't have to make this decision tonight, but she feels like she does. It's like suddenly I'm being faced with this thing that's going to affect the rest of my life. And there's a sense of urgency. And so that's one of the things that I like about it is that like, I mean, this guy is like, I'm, I sympathize with him. I, I, I think he's kind of likable, um, but more specifically, I'd say he's sympathetic, which is not the same as likable. Um, I appreciate what he is doing. I understand why he is doing it, both the positive and the negative reasons. Um, but I mean, it's just like, it's so fascinating how like this one mistake, and it's a big mistake, don't get me wrong, like can affect his whole life. And, but also the way, not merely the mistake, but also the way he reacts to it one way or another. And just, and there's such, there's so much going on with, again, like you said, like there's a nobility to what he is doing. And I don't think anybody would, would argue that there isn't, but there's also one could make the argument, a certain self-righteousness in what he is doing. Like this feeling, like you said, wanting to be better than his father. Like, yeah, there's fear, like neg- these negative things, like being afraid of becoming his father, but also needing to constantly prove that he's better than his father. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's like, well, those are neg- those are not good motivators, no, no, no. you not know. Um, and that's and that one of the things that I and I guess we can go ahead and get into the theme now, um, because one thing that the film does do, and I feel like maybe the like. And it's weird. Once again, we're in a situation where it's like, so he's talking to his father who's not there. Right. As if his father's in the rear view. As if his father's in the, yeah. Uh, Which winds up being a nice little image because it implies that like his father's always right there behind him Uh looking over him and that kind of thing. So, um, but it's that's such a ham fisted decision from a writer's standpoint to have him so directly like 
he's basically saying, you're why I'm doing this. I'm stating my motivation. And yet somehow the way it's written and specifically the way it's acted, mm-hmm. I'm okay with it. Yep. Like perpetually, this is a movie that seem that makes decisions that feel wrong, but it do, it pulls them off. Yeah, and and also the way you know I I don't know I don't know how many other people do this, but I will often argue with people that aren't there, uh, sure. like imagining what this conversation would be, uh, and it from a writer standpoint, it felt very much like that. The way like. Like, oh, just relishing, like, oh, if my dad was here, this is what I'd be telling him. This, right here, you know? And it's like, and almost, you almost get the sense that, like, he knows how much he is sacrificing, and that, to him, is indicative of how how noble... How much better he is than his dad. Yeah, like, look at how much I'm sacrificing to do the right thing. Like, it's really hard. I'm doing the hard thing, which you weren't willing to do. Yep. But what I love... And I mean love. Is it at the, is it right near the end? He's talking to his dad again, you know, quote unquote, and his tone has softened a lot. He has come to understand exactly what it means to like do the hard thing. And he starts to say, and you've seen it more recently than I have, but something like, I think I understand now why you did this, you know? I'm, uh, memory serves. I, I think I was grabbing a pear from the fridge. I might have missed that one little bit, but I remember hearing it. Yeah, and I, I think it might have been more in the context of, um, what was the line again? It's something to the effect of, you know, I think I understand now. Yeah, I think that was just in the context of I'm an adult now, so I have perspective now, and so I, I kind of get it. But he's, he's never forgiving. Of his dad. I think that, honestly, like, I took that line as forgiving. Hmm. Like, because, or at least the first step towards forgiving. Because I think when you forgive somebody, there, it starts with an understanding of like, this person did this terrible thing to me, but in the right circumstance, I'm I'm just as capable of that. What are you confused about? Well, I'm confused because it, is he justifying what he's doing based on now he's doing something like that as well? Is that, is that what we're supposed to get from that? No, I think it's that, uh, he spends the whole movie, you know, throwing this in his, it's, it's so interesting talking about his dad as though he's a character that's there. He kind of is a character. We, yeah. his backstory basically. Yeah. And the I mean, way he looks when he shows up when he's like a kid. Yeah. It's well, and what's interesting is when you think about it, like, there's only ever one character on screen. Like there are other characters that are there and aren't there. The only difference is we hear them. We, we do. don't hear the dad, but he's yeah. just as much there as anybody else. Yeah. Um, it's really expertly done. The yeah. entire thing. But the, uh, but like the whole time, every time he talks to his dad, like there's a real defiance there mm-hmm. and this feeling of like, I'm better than you. I'm doing what you couldn't. Mm-hmm. And then I think by the end of the movie, I think he realizes, Oh yeah, this is the hard thing. Like, I, I think he comes to realize like how how much of a sacrifice he is making, and how much he has done, and how much he's he's 
maybe not ruined his own life, but how much he's, he's hurt his own life and the people that he loves and how he's going to have to go back and face these people, which is something that his dad did not want to do. Hmm. And in that moment, I think he realizes like, boy, never going back to look at my wife's face sounds pretty good right now. Like, I don't want to go back but and that's sort see of shallow because it's, it's, it's all coming out of his decision, which I still feel is incorrect. Oh, sure. Absolutely. So it's, it's, it's weird. That's, I think that's the root of my confusion is like, it's weird to give him this, uh, this extra, like, oh, he's learned something sort of, you know, vibe, like in what you're saying, when in fact, what he's learning is that he's made a huge mistake. Yeah, it could be any number of things. Like the thing that motivated him to do this is unforgiveness of his father. Like if he had forgiven his dad, then he might not be so terrified of becoming like him that this is not a decision that he would make, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, and so I think for him to arrive at this much better place at the end, having made a number of wrong decisions out of a place of unforgiveness and now having seen also what it costs to do the right thing. And it's a cost that his dad didn't necessarily want to pay or more specifically didn't want to face the consequences of his actions or maybe didn't even care or maybe didn't care. But one way or another, like I think he is, I think it's argued that Locke is very humbled by the end in some way. Uh, I think he's, I think he is, you know, there's a smile when he hears like the, the baby, baby crying, crying mm-hmm. and the, there's a feeling of like, the, there is something to be salvaged from this. Like I can still do right by this kid, but I think he also, he's arrived. Like there's also a sense of relief, I think, because I do think by the end, I think he is taking, taking a very large step towards letting go of what his dad did to him because it took all these terrible things that came about as a function of a, uh, of a choice he made and then choices that he's continued to make. Um, I think that has humbled him enough to him to finally say to his dad, like, I think I understand now. Um, so I feel, I, I, I feel like it's all of, a, I feel like it's all of a, all of a piece. Like, I don't think it can, I don't think it's film that necessarily justifies what he did simply because he got to this conclusion at the end. I'm not so certain that that's the same, that I see the same conclusion that you see. Hmm. I see a guy who's, um, am I going to challenge you? Maybe. Mm. I, I, I just, I see a guy who certainly sees the result of his decision, but whether it's humbled him, I, I, I there's a, there's a, not even a, a fine line, there's a thick line between like being humbled and recognizing that you've made a huge mistake and that you should never have made this decision. Mm. That's not humility. That's, crap, I wish I could go back and make a better decision. That's not really humility, is it? Not, you haven't really learned anything. I think the humility is like, oh, wow, I am, I think realizing that you are as capable of making horrible decisions as this person that you have demonized your entire life. Hmm. I think that's where the understanding comes from. I guess we don't get a clear enough picture of what the, like the differences between his dad's mistake and his mistake currently. Right. To, to see that, that, and I like that it's not a one-to-one comparison either. I don't, I don't don't mind it either, honestly, but, but if you're going to make the point that he's come to the same conclusion that his dad did, or that he's now on par with the mistakes his dad made without really knowing what those mistakes were, it feels a little, 
Well, maybe his conclusion, maybe the, maybe his dad never came to that conclusion, but it's more just like, you know, everything is about the way he has approached the concept of his father. Right. And what, and at this point, like it's so far away from what his father might actually be that, you know, that it's only ever been about this character lock in the first place. And so I do think, you know, when you get a character who clearly after years of hating and condemning his father and acting as though I could never do something that could hurt people the way you did. Yeah. And then having spent 90 minutes listening to people hurt because of a thing he did and a thing Mm -hmm. he is still doing. Um, I think that's where the humility comes from. Like I, I certainly don't think by the end of that, he would ever say, yes, I'm better than my father. Like, but by the, by the time he gets to that point, shouldn't he then turn around and go back? I mean, he's, he has, he's been fired mm -hmm. and he's been effectively divorced, but he's still, has those responsibilities. If he went back, they'd say, Oh, you're, you're back. Okay. Now you can handle the poor, right? Well, you just fired me. I don't care. You need to do this, please. You're hired. You know? So, I mean, I think that his, his <laughs> life, hired. though it would be broken mm-hmm. uh, to a certain extent, at least he would, he would be reversing the bad decision that I feel like he's making. And here, while you were talking, I was sort of parsing in my own mind, like trying to figure out why is it that I feel so strongly that he's made a bad decision. And even though I said that it's a noble thing to do, Mm-hmm. Like, I'm I'm trying to figure out like where how do I define that that gap? And I guess it, it's about timing. Well, yeah. no, it's it's more like the fact that he's going is a good thing. The reason he's going mm-hmm. is the bad thing, and this is the theme that we're talking yeah. about. I believe keep going into that is is the fact that it's not for the baby, it's not for the woman. Yeah, it's. Because he wants to be better than his dad. Right. And that's something you can never prove to anybody. That's something that should never be the motivating factor of anything in your life. The mistake is that he's allowed that fear of being his dad to make him go, even though he doesn't care about these people at all. And And he even tries to explain it to his wife at some point, right? Like, he says, like, you know, this thing with my dad, and she's not having any of it. Yeah. Admittedly, how could you yeah. in that moment? Well, and then you asked earlier, you said, is he making the right decision? Like, shouldn't he go? Because he, it is his responsibility. And I said, no, because blah, blah, blah. But I don't know. I don't know what the right, what I would do. I don't right. know what the decision, the right decision is. But the fact that, I mean, isn't this what the whole movie is about? The decision yeah. to do it because he's afraid of becoming his dad, which is such a singular emotional kind of thing just for him. Yeah. And yet it's spiraling out into hurting all these other people that that's, that's a mistake. It let can't me, not be a mistake. Let me suggest this, that by the end, having now gotten to a place where he is, where he understands what has been motivating him at the very least, like a complete lack of forgiveness of his father. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe at the end, when he hears the kid crying and stuff, maybe now the reason he doesn't turn around is like, well, first off he's there now, like, but also it's like, well, I'm here. I might as well be here. But also it could be first. And it's also a sense of relief. Like, okay, the kid's okay. But also it might be, well, now that that's done now that I not done, but like now that 
now that I don't have my dad on my back anymore, or at least my idea of my dad on my back, now I'm actually free to genuinely be what this kid needs and genuinely be what this woman needs Hmm. and what my wife needs. Like everything was colored by this. Like I went here for selfish reasons, but now that I'm here and now that I realize what those reasons were and I am putting them to the side, now that I'm here, I can be here for the right reasons. Um, I don't know. And of course all this is, you know, it's so interesting. The film is so specific in some ways and yet so vague. And I say that in a good way, maybe ambiguous, not vague, ambiguous in other ways that it allows this conversation to happen. You know, that like, and again, like I said, it is a, it is a, it is a divisive film. I think the film spotting guys were torn on it. Like Mm. viewing his actions as like, yeah. Rationale. Yeah. Boy, I just, I don't, by the end of the movie, I don't, I don't like him more mm-hmm. than I did at the beginning. Uh, I think he's, I think he's lost. I think he's, it, no, it's it, Locke. It's pronounced oops, Locke. It's, I think it's, uh, Ivan Lost is his oh, okay. name. No, I think he's, he's lost in a, in a spiritual sense. I'm not talking about Christianity necessarily. He's just mm-hmm. spiritually, he's like, there's no mooring there because he's, he has, the, the movie gives you the impression that his wife is going to be as stalwart as he is. That's not the right word. As staunch in her belief that, you know, he should not come back mm-hmm. as he is in virtually every decision he's made, um, in the movie. And that he's, he doesn't really have a wife to go back to. And then once his sons find out what he did, that they're not going to like him anymore either. And he's certainly not going back to his job at this point. Mm-hmm. So I, I feel like he's lost spiritually. He's lost physically and he's lost where he's going because is he really going to be able to learn to love this woman just because he made a mistake seven months ago and now he's here responsibly to take care of the baby? I actually, I have no expectation of him being in a relationship with that woman. So he's like going to, going to leave her again. I think it's, I think it's, he'll be there for her in regards to like, certainly financially Hmm. and just, and also trying to actively be like a father to the kid. And again, and again, like it depends on people's, uh, I think it's a film that people say things and you can take it at face value or you cannot. Like I, I genuinely do feel like his wife will probably take him back. Um, and I think his sons will come to resent, but eventually understand where he is, you know, and maybe that's me being optimistic. I don't know. Um, you're an optimistic person. Yeah, that's me. <laughs> that's me all over. Uh, when it comes to this movie, you're optimistic, apparently. But, uh, and maybe, maybe it's, you know, wishful thinking on my part that, yeah. like, I want to believe you want to have that reconciliation ending. is possible. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's the realization, it's like, but there's still things that have been broken. Like, that's, that's the thing that I like about, one of the things that I like about the movie is that there is, there is no perfect ending. There is no completely happy ending. Someone somewhere is hurt. It could be his wife for discovering that he's, you know, cheated on her. It could be this woman who now is left with a baby and no one to help her. Mm -hmm. It could be his boss. Like it's just, or everyone, all of the above. And just like he, he did this thing and part of embracing responsibility, whether he does it for a good reason or not, part of embracing responsibility is like, all right, 
there is no putting this all back together again. It's never going to be like it was. Like what I did has changed the the let's if nothing else the tone of my life. And so what do I do now? Mm-hmm. And I feel like that is again his motivations can be called into question, but the fact of that is something that I think is is terrifying. Hmm. Uh, when, when I think of like having to take responsibility for like a, a decision that I've made or something like that. And just the, having to see the expressions on people's faces when I've hurt them, when I've said something yeah. bad and just like, I mean, like I have such tremendous regrets. Like I, like there are people that I want to go, I want to like fly out to the Midwest and like just beg their forgiveness. Wow. Um, and you know, and that's part of being an adult and part of what responsibility means is cause like in a way it just feels like Locke should be like, all right, you know what? I'm going to go with uh door number three and I'm going to just fly to Spain and that's where I'm going to live from now on. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to deal with any of this, you yeah. know, which is, I think a thing that his, his dad did, Sure. you know, and I think he, condemned that but now that he's in a position where it's like there is no winning here i think maybe that third option of just leaving everyone because you can't stand to see the impact that you've had the negative impact you've had on people it's like yeah that's pretty appealing now i think i get it i think i get why someone why someone would make that choice mm-hmm. um but uh so we'll actually I'll, I'll go ahead and get into the companion film now okay um which is Paul Schrader's Affliction. Wee! <laughs> yeah, even the name is fun. <laughs> uh, based on the novel by Russell Banks, which I have read and is very good. Wow. Um, Russell Banks also wrote The Sweet Hereafter. Oof. Uh, but a downer. Yeah, which is a, that's a wonderful movie. It's one of my favorite movies saying, of all time. Yeah, oh, it's fantastic and beautiful. Yeah. But I went years saying, I've never seen a sadder movie than that. It, it, personifies that's not the right word but epitomizes yeah sadness it's just shot through with sadness so sad just sad i can't get over how sad it is it's you know what's strange is yes sweet hereafter is sad but that's not what i that's not the word i would use to describe it i would describe it as mournful like there's a there's a specific kind of sadness that it has um you've nuanced me oh for the last time Oh no! And uh, if I wish we could put a, a lightsaber sound effect in there, um, maybe we can. No, that's not the. That's I'm, we're not doing theater of the mind right now. Um, so, Affliction uh, stars Nick Nolte, Sissy Spacek, Willem Dafoe, James Coburn, and various others. It was nominated for Best Actor for Nick Nolte, and it won Best Supporting Actor for James Coburn. Good for him. And it is about uh, you know, it's a movie that I remember loving when I first saw it and I still have an appreciation for it. Um, and it's just about this small town. It's not so, not so much like the chief of police in a small town. It means nothing to be chief of police right. in this town, but, uh, well, you get the sense he's, he's kind of the hire of somebody else. So he's not, he doesn't really have that much authority. Yeah. Like he has other jobs. Like yeah. he's just kind of this, he's like, uh, like traffic, for the buses like the yeah, cars going around the buses it's like yeah why are you doing that i thought you were a cop yeah it's it, like it, affliction is not really a plot driven film it's a character driven film Definitely. and so it's this guy who you know he's divorced and so he and he also has a daughter so he's trying to be a good father but then he comes from a, a 
an alcoholic home where his father, played by James Coburn, was very verbally and maybe physically abusive of his. I'd say physically put a bottle on the guy's head, on the kid's head, on the kid, on on the grown man's head. We don't see any. I, I don't think I ever saw. No, in a flashback, any, you see uh, Coburn take a bottle and like smash it over the kid's head. Are you sure? I've seen the movie many times. I know he does I've that. I've seen it once. So I'll with, defer to you. Okay. Maybe maybe it's there and I don't remember. Maybe but like I see him on the head. That maybe, but that's still pretty bad. The kid falls down for some um, reason. But uh, but yeah, and so uh, so let's go ahead and say physical abuse as well. Um, but easy, yeah, but it's easy to it's, assume, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, James Coburn. Come on. Um, but yeah, and and it, it's what what I like is that uh, so Nick Nolte plays this character who's just very angry and very aimless and doesn't really seem to know what he wants. Uh, and so he latches on to certain things where he can like, okay, he's gonna, he's decided he's going to get custody of his daughter back. No particular reason why he seems to, it's, it's almost like, you know, we talked earlier about, uh, the anchors that, uh, that Locke needs. And it's like, he's looking for these anchors so that wherever he can, so that he's not just drifting. He has a girlfriend played by Sissy Spacek and it's like, eh, maybe we'll marry or we'll get married. And uh, then that'll be my anchor. Like he's just, I don't know. And, and it's not until a solid, probably 20, 25 minutes into the movie that you then meet his father. Mm. And, and you start to understand where this man comes from. And his father is just this monstrous guy who's just the worst. Um, and what's interesting is when you first meet him, he's not drunk. And so he's actually kind of, uh, has a doddering quality to him and seems kind of confused and certainly hung over. Well, you see him a couple and, of times in flashbacks being violent. Yeah, yeah. The first time you see him kind of in present day is just kind of an old lazy boy or something. Yeah, and he's, and he's you know, got long underwear and all that kind of thing. And mm-hmm. so you just feel like, oh, this guy, he, he seems harmless he's now. He's been defanged in yeah. some way, but we don't know yeah. how. And then he gets drunk. And uh-huh. you're like, oh, there he is. Yeah. I see. And it's really, you know, it's, it's hard to watch. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, you know, I don't come from a family like that, but I know people that have. And it's just... It, it just sounds so horrible to just not feel safe in your own home. And, and it becomes clear that like, okay, so Wade Whitehouse, uh, is terrified of being his dad. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he is, he, you know, and clearly he has like anger issues and stuff. And so he, he's so focused on not being that thing that he winds that like, he's almost, come to define himself by what he's not going to be, which maybe explains why he's a little bit aimless because he never defined what he is going to be. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's why I think the film is, is often kind of f- emotionally frustrating to watch because you're just like, Oh, this, this character had like, he's, he's str- struggling for definition. Like he doesn't know who he is. He only knows, who he is not, but then at the same time, he's become so focused on that thing that I don't think he necessarily becomes like an alcoholic, like his father or anything like that, but he becomes a version of it. Um, well, it's so uh, the corollary is between the, this and the other movie mm-hmm. is the decision-making and the, how 
hard and fast you make those decisions and stick yeah. with them. Like a good example is uh, the subplot of the movie is, or is it the plot? I don't know. It's yeah. sort of solving the, the crime of this uh, senator or something that's in town and gets shot in a hunting accident. I think it's just like a, just a, an, a very wealthy industrialist who gets yeah. shot in, in a seeming hunting accident. But, or was it? So that's, or was it? That's the question. Yeah. Well, he, uh, his brother, p- played by Willem Dafoe, uh, kind of feeds him a, a theory, a conspiracy theory almost. Like, I, I think maybe it was this. And just sort of idly almost one day. But yeah. I, I really think it is. And it convinces Nick Nolte that this is what it was. So that becomes not the theory, but the fact. So the way he treats everyone yeah. involved in the case from that point on is just this rising level of, I know what you did, and I'm going to get you. And that's yeah. all it is in some form or fashion the rest of the movie. And it, and it, it correlates to... Our good friend Locke yeah. who makes his decision there at the beginning and sticks to it, no matter what it makes him look like to other people, no matter how it helps people to judge you as rash, as angry, as irrational, as ridiculous, as not a real man, whatever. Yeah. So, yeah, it's an interesting correlation. Well, good, and good pick. Oh, thank you. And there's something about the way Wade seizes on this conspiracy theory that makes it almost clear. It, it almost feels like in his own mind, and I don't think he ever actually says it, but it's almost like I'm going to be a hero. Yeah. Like I'm going to break this whole thing exactly. wide open and I'm going to be a hero. He needs it because he needs, like you said so well, he needs definition. Yeah. And getting married to Sissy Spacek is going to be a definition, part of his definition. Yeah. Getting his daughter back is going to be a part of his de- definition. And, maybe more than any of that stuff is being the hero that's going to solve this giant crime that no one else seems to really put much importance on. Yeah. And just, and like, and he's, it's clear he's not very well respected in the community. Mm -hmm. So it's like, so think of like how he imagines himself to be or what he, what his plans are. He's going to be married. He's going to have his daughter. He's going to be a hero in the community who rooted out corruption and people will love him. Like he will be, to go back to a word that you used, there will be, he will be noble. He will be like a hero is noble. And that's what he's going to be. He's certainly not like this broken down drunk old man. No, he's going to be different. He's Mm going to be the exact opposite. And so he is defined by, he's defined by his father. And I didn't necessarily want this move, this episode to be about like fathers specifically. Um, but just, you know, the, the people in our lives that maybe have done bad things to us in some way, right. you know, it could be like, you know, uh, it's so interesting. The, uh, I was, I saw a counselor once and he said, uh, and he said that almost everybody can probably remember maybe even verbatim a few key things that have been said to them and they're like, and, and they can probably, and, and if they really are honest with themselves, they can point to those things and say, yeah, that's a clear motivator for me. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I know that for my, and so when he said that, he's like, can you think of any, of any, you know, mm-hmm. to put it in movie terms, any lines that you think maybe have defined some of how you act. And I was like, Oh boy, Mm -hmm. yes. And I'll say some of them now. I will not provide any context, but you'll be able to get it. One of them is Tyler. Are you sure he wants to hang out with you? Hmm. That's one. One is Tyler doesn't want Jesus. Tyler wants attention. Hmm. And then the other one is, do you need that? Or do you just want it? 
So those are three big ones, and uh, it's pretty rough. And and when I've talked to people about those, uh, it's become very clear that like the only way those lines again to go back to the movie thing, the only way those lines will define me is if I is if there's real like unforgive uh, like a lack of forgiveness on the part of the people who said them. Because that person could say, oh my gosh, I can't, like, if I talk to them about it now, that person could say, I can't believe I said that. That was so, and I certainly didn't know it was going to have this impact on you. I'm so sorry. Please disregard it. You know what I mean? Like, they could say that. Might be too late. It might, but it might be, but it's only too late if I make it too late. That's true. You know what I mean? Like, that's, that's my decision. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like, you know, that is what we're looking at with, Locke and with Wade is these two guys who are just, you know, we talked about it. Like even when they do the right thing, it's motivated by this, this frustration with other people and and a desire to be better than the people that did this thing to them. I can, uh, can I? Sure. Well, I mean, the truth is that you said you didn't want necessarily want to make the episode about dads, but I mean, anyone who listened to the, previous podcast or the, my testimony podcast will know that that I actually came from a very harmful household because of mm-hmm. my dad and <clears throat> I can think of a couple of things that he said to me I think the, the refrain was boy you're weird hmm. and so I, I always thought of myself as weird and other people have said I, you're weird <laughs> you know to me and I they they don't mean it in a like a condescending way, they might even mean it as a compliment. Mm-hmm. Like you're not like other people, or I'm glad you're like that. I'm glad, I'm glad you're kind yeah. of goofy or whatever. But they say it almost as a way of saying unique or yeah, distinct. Exactly. Like both of which are yeah. better than the word weird. Yeah. But yeah. I, what I hear is my dad saying it anytime anyone else says it to me. So I, and it reinforces what I think that my dad was saying to me, which is that he didn't like me. You know, yeah. like why aren't you normal? And so this, I, I'm just like, in certain ways, I'm just like Wade, I'm just like mm-hmm. Locke. And that I feel like, have felt like for a long, long time, up until recently, that my dad was right behind me, if not right in front of me, staring at me. And I can tell you that living a life trying to do what you want to do, like creatively or mm-hmm. job-wise or with women, um, a lot of it is motivated incorrectly, I should say, me it, it was motivated incorrectly by me not in, not wanting to be my dad who uh, you know he called me weird he called me lazy whatever but i had my opinions of him as well yeah and i thought here's a guy who has no imagination no creativity i'm going to do i'm going to show him and I, I this is this is not just like i can say this now i'm i was saying this then in my head with these words i'll show him i'll make a name for myself yeah. Or I'll show him, I'll write something that's really awesome that he'll never understand. Yeah. You know, or something like that. And so that, that has, was what drove me to, I believe, like one to one ratio here to continue writing, to, to try to direct something, which I did, and to try to just accomplish these things that I could then show, not with a sense of pride in that I did something, but it's something that my dad would never get. Yeah. Or that my dad wouldn't understand, like, how do you even do that? Yeah. Like, wow. And then I have some level of respect for me because I did something. Yeah. And for me, it was more about the, the image I have of my dad is, is kind of like 
how we see wage dad in in current time. Yeah. The first time is like sitting in a kind of a dank living room watching yeah. some old western or something on TV, whatever he was watching on TV and not really doing anything with his life. And I felt like he was kind of that way my entire childhood as well. And I couldn't have put it into words at the time. And I certainly couldn't have put it into words that that I could then lay on myself as a motivation for something. You know what you know what I mean? It's like yeah. you don't have the, the, the vocabulary at the time to to piece it together in any kind of a definition or this is who I am or this is who I don't want to be. You're just sort of acting on it instinctively. But by, you know, late high school or college, certainly by now, you are. And you're aware enough of the world around you and the way people think and where motivations come from and the whole psychology of of all of that that you it's it's extremely simple Mm -hmm. to to make that ratio or to make that connection in your head um but if you if you ever listen to it or i'll just say now that when i gave my testimony that was like a year and a half ago i guess Mm -hmm. and then since then i i did seek counseling specifically for talking through those kinds of things and trying to figure out like why I had these feelings still at my age, and um, it was at some point during my counseling that I I kind of realized that the language that I was using against my dad, who had passed away like ten, now twelve, thirteen years ago, um, was not correct. I just sort of hung on to a version of my anger yeah. from when I was a kid, and the way I was feeling wasn't really anymore that I was angry at him and that I wanted to best him and, you know, have a life that he could never understand. It was more, um, sympathy or, wow, I feel sorry for a guy who ever let himself become the way he became. Yeah. And it was a year and a half ago that I really feel like I started to, uh, kind of turn that around and go, you know what? I don't, he's not in the backseat anymore. He's not right in front of me anymore. I'm not having these like sepia tone flashbacks of my dad, you know, being angry at me and calling me weird when I was a kid. It's more like I, I kind maybe like you're describing a lot at the end of the movie. There's like this more of an understanding. Yeah. Like I, I know where he came from. I know the kind of life he had when he was a kid. Yeah. And this sort of stuff is cyclical. And I kind of, I understand it. What he did, the decision he made, this is, has to go back to like why I hate the decision he made in Locke. Mm-hmm. But um, the decisions he made and the way he behaved in our family was completely incorrect. But I kind of understand more now than I did even a year and a half ago, yeah. uh, late into my adulthood. Um, so, yeah, it, it is about dads, this episode. Bad dads. Well, and and... Learning to live with. I kids. always considered my dad to be uh, very good and very encouraging and all of that, and I think he was that sort of in defiance of his own. Again, I don't think he ever knew his actual dad, but his the only dad he really knew, which was his stepfather. And I've and I told this story uh, when I talked when I did a minisode about my own dad um, that like he was very like not physically I think, but like verbally very abusive and constantly saying stuff like you know. I believe you said that your dad called you lazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like, he, which is weird. Cause yeah. I wasn't, it, it's weird. The stuff that people like, I don't know. He called my dad lazy and he said like, you'll never amount to anything, all that stuff. And I think there was some alcoholism there too, but like, um, and just, and my dad just like internalized that and became a, by his own admission, like 
became a total workaholic. Like just this idea. It's like, I'll sh- again, I'll show him. Mm-hmm. I'll show him who's lazy. I'll show him who will never amount to anything. And then, you know, and arguably my dad probably worked himself into an early grave because mm-hmm. he tended to stress out about things. But like, um, but yeah. And then, and then later on as this guy would come back into our lives often to ask for money. Mm-hmm. Now I don't actually, I, it's so, it's so frustrating. Like I, it's, now that I'm older and I know more about life, uh, I do wish that like my dad was around so that I could just ask him these certain things. Cause what I wanted to say is like, when he came back and asked for money, like, how did you feel? Like, did you feel like, and it sounds, it's based on what my mom has said. It sounds like there was some genuine forgiveness that eventually happened. But like, I have to assume the very first time there would have been like, yeah, that's right. You're asking me for money. Yeah. The tables have turned. Now you're the one who hasn't mounted to anything. You know, like I have to, like, it's, it's such a human instinct. I have to assume my dad felt that it's not a good instinct by the way, but it's, it's a very human one. And so like, uh, just this again. And, and I think you, you hit the nail. I'll show them, you know, I'll show my dad what it looks like to embrace responsibility. I'll show my dad that I, that I'm not defined by his, his, uh, abuse, you know, in, uh, in, uh, affliction. Um, you know, but that's the thing is I don't want to make this only about dads or parents. You know, I think that's, that's the clearest example we can, ha- we can have is we can point to a thing they did or a thing they said and, and say, this was the person who was supposed to protect me. Yep, this exactly. was the person who was supposed to shape me. And then, but then they did this instead. And then hopefully as you get older, you realize, oh, right. They're just people. And they make all kinds of mistakes just as I make mistakes, you know, and you come to this point that we were talking that I was talking about with Locke where it's like, I think I understand now at least where you came from a little bit. There's also, by the way, a wonderful album by the Mountain Goats, I believe, called The Sunset Tree. Um, and it's all about John Darnell's, uh, is it John Darnell? Yeah. Uh, his very abusive stepfather. Mm. Um, and it's just, and it's an album all about that. But in the, and he is now dead. And in the, in the liner notes, it's, it's dedicated to a number of people, including his stepfather. And he says like, I hope you found the peace that you could not find in life. Like, and I feel like that's a note of forgiveness. That's a note of like, like, wow, how miserable must you have been to do this to other people? Yeah. You know? And, you know, and that's a, that, that's very much a, you know, forgive them for they know not what they do kind of thing. Um, and so one thing that we are talking about is forgiveness and what that looks like, because when you don't forgive and we'll get to that in a moment, what forgiveness means, cause I get iffy about it. Uh, when you don't forgive, then you really, uh, this is going to sound super motivational speakery, by the way, you're still, you're giving that person power over you. You're and more specifically, you're giving what that person did to you. You're giving that power over you. Whereas when you forgive them, you're actually taking the power back. You're saying, I'm not going to let this thing tell me who I am. I'm going to say that this is not the end of the world, that I am, 
just as capable of doing these things as anybody else. I'm not better than this person. And so I can just, I can move on and maybe try to learn from it and maybe try not to be that thing, but not with an air of superiority, you know, more just as a, maybe a cautionary kind of thing, you know, in the same way that like, you know, my dad in an attempt to correct what his stepfather told him, like my dad, uh, was very, tried to be very clear to both my brother and I, that's like, Hey, work is not everything. It's not the most important thing. It's not what defines you. Like he really tried to hammer that into us, even though he was a workaholic, like it's almost like he saw, he thought it was like, well, it's too late for me. I've already, mm. this is already a part of learn me, from but, my mistake. but you can learn from me. And so, um, so I've got a number of quotes here, uh, about forgiveness and bitterness and that sort of thing. Uh, a couple by, uh, CS Lewis, uh, forgiveness does not mean excusing. And I think that's something that people often think forgiveness is, is saying like, no, it's okay. It's like, well, it's not okay. Like this thing that this person said or did, it, it could be inherently wrong. Yes. And forgiving them doesn't mean you're saying that what they did was fine. You know, I feel like I've, I've erred not in this way, but in my definition of forgiveness as well, uh, with regard to my dad, because I feel like, you know, the old phrase like forgive and forget. Mm Mm-hmm. I feel like that more so than forgiving, I've forgotten. Um, I always think that like most of what happened in our family didn't happen to me, that I sort of got off scot-free in a way. Mm-hmm. But I was still ridiculously emotionally abused by my dad. Yeah. So, but when I talk about forgiveness of my dad, I'm not talking about in terms of just me. I mean in terms of the entire family. Right. So, when he, when I kind of came to this new conclusion about a year and a half ago, and started looking at it differently, it's almost like I, n- I never actually got to the point of forgiving him before that. Obviously, because I was angry, and I thought he was horrible, and and all this stuff. So, when I start looking at him as, as a pathetic person, as opposed to a person to be angry at, yeah, that changed my, also changed my attitude about whether or not I needed to forgive him. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. if somebody has done something horrible to you, and you're angry at them for it, that's a clear uh, scenario for forgiveness. Right. It's like it just lays the carpet out. So let's okay, forgive. This is this is a forgiving situation. Yeah. But if if horrible things happened and you go, oh, um, I get why you're why you're that way. Yeah. It was a horrible thing, but I get it. You know, life almost is like, like oh, he doesn't know any better or something yeah, like that. Yeah. It's a, and I guess it is excusing. What is the quote? Maybe it is excusing. Maybe it is C.S. Lewis's hmm. dictum. Um, maybe I got some work to do yet. Maybe. Yeah. Who's to say? Maybe I need to go back to hating my dad. Uh, yeah, so, so I think that's a good call. <laughs> no, I think. I mean, I think that's. I think the first step is. I, I don't think you're necessarily excusing it. I think it's more just like. It's it's a step towards reconciliation. Uh, or maybe not. I mean, he's gone. You can't yeah. completely reconcile. But more this. It's again, it's not a complete, it's not complete forgiveness. It is a big step towards that. It's, yeah. it's Locke saying, I understand now. And you're saying in your own way, I understand in the same way that like, you know, that the, the liner notes of, uh, the sunset tree, which is like, you know, may you, may you, I hope you've 
achieve the peace that you couldn't find in life. And it's, it's, it's understanding. It's not saying this is okay. And it's just saying that like, okay, maybe, maybe you weren't, you weren't motivated by just sheer malice all the time. Like maybe there was, maybe you had your own demons like we all do, you know? Um, but, uh, so another one, uh, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. And I will follow that up with a quick quote by Lee Strobel. Now, would you, how would you pronounce that first word? Acrid, 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 acrid bitterness inevitably seeps into the lives of people who harbor grudges and suppress anger. And bitterness is always a poison. It keeps your pain alive instead of letting you deal with it and get beyond it. Bitterness sentences you to relive the the hurt over and over. And so, so now we get into this idea of forgiveness. Um, and I think I've said it on the show before. I don't really know what person-to-person forgiveness looks like. I, I completely understand and I completely accept the idea of God's forgiveness because God is perfect. But person to person, if I'm being honest with myself and I've written numerous journal entries about this, I recognize factually that this is incorrect, but I genuinely feel that person to person forgiveness isn't possible. Now, maybe that's a cynical view. I don't know. Maybe that's a, there's so. a fatalism I mean, to a, it. You just described the difference between God's ability to forgive and man's ability to forgive. That's and true. God would always have more more capacity for forgiveness yeah. than we because he is holy and just and yeah. forever. Um, whereas I, well, forgive and forget doesn't actually happen. It, yeah. can't, it can't really happen because you'll always remember those things that that person did. It's, some, it's like a willful effort to shut off that memory anytime it comes on. It's almost, in some ways, it's like temptation. It's like how you do a temptation. It's going to happen, yeah. meaning it's going to come into your mind, but it's what you do with it then. Yeah. Same way with like, a, like you're face-to-face with someone who's doing something again that you've already forgiven them for, let's say. And, you know, it's like deciding as soon as that feeling of anger comes back to you because it's a knee-jerk thing, deciding how you, before it happens, Deciding how you'll have how you'll deal with that once you get to that point. Yeah, and that's a it's practice. I'm saying it as if I do it. I yeah. don't do that. I wish I could do that, but I'm I'm with you. It's a very difficult. I just thing to I, do. I don't think I have a picture of it when it comes to people. And you know, when we were talking uh, off mic about this, you said like, "Well, have you ever forgiven your wife for something?" And the answer is yes, and she's forgiven me for for things. But then I feel like okay, so if I've let's say Jen has said uh, said something to me that is hurtful, and it's and there, it's a specific type of comment, and in the moment it's like okay, I didn't like that, but we've talked it through. She knows that it was hurtful, and I know that she's not perfect, and we can move on. Like. And if my mind goes to that thing, like, yeah, that sucked, but it's not, but it doesn't, it's not that initial sting of pain, you know? And so, and as a result, my mind just does not link, doesn't go to it very often, you know? But, and so it's like, okay, well, that look, I think that's forgiveness. Like, 
the ability to move on and not focus so much on the pain of the of the the wound um which then allows it to heal there might be you know to keep the analogy going uh there might be some scar tissue but Mm -hmm. it has healed um and so i so you know when you mention like have you forgiven your wife it's like yes i have but then i think okay now imagine my wife comes back and says the same, t- the exact same hurtful thing. Now, ugh, like, I feel like from a forgiveness standpoint, I should react to that as though it's the first time she said it. But I'm not going to. I'm going to react as though she'd said it this is the second time she said it. Which means, like, okay, so is there actual forgiveness there? You know, if I'm reacting to that, like, it's almost like it's like the impact is compounded because she's done it before. And so was there actual forgiveness the first time if I'm reacting the second time as though well, that's it like is asking, the second time? That's like asking is her statement the same the first time or the second time? Is it the first time or the second time? That's, that's abstract. The, the, I know. The, that's the, what's tough. The, the reality is that if you have truly forgiven her and and as humans we haven't forgotten – necessarily right. what we have forgiven um that when that second time happens you have a choice um if you've talked not just forgiven but told her or had the conversation and even said it in more practical terms like you know what this is a rule we should make you can't say that to me anymore because right. it's unfair and it's or it's untrue um or it's out of context whatever it is so instead of being angry in that moment now i feel like dr phil instead of being angry in that moment that second time mm-hmm which is still a time, yeah. you know, to deal with. Um, it's it's more about honey. I th- I think we talked about that. That's unfair already. So now it's now it becomes a conversation about that instead of what you're angry about to begin with. Meaning, isn't that an option to just sort of flip it? It's like it's not you're not. It's not like you're reacting to something that she's that she's thrown at you again because of the bigger conversation or argument that you're having it's more like now it becomes love we that's you can't say that um, i i wish that you wouldn't say that and if you're calm about it because you have forgiven her but you're practical about it it's a practical thing it just seems like it's a practical thing even though there's emotions flying around yeah. like at that moment it snaps into a practical thing wait a minute what you can't hit me below the belt. You know, that's against the rules. Where's the ref? You know, I think that's the, that's the issue for me is forgiveness. I, I've always, I view it as a very abstract idea. Um, and it is, and it's a marvelous idea. Well, when you say that you can you understand, know. you can, you, you can trust that God's forgiveness is real. Yeah. That's like, it, for me, it was weird hearing that. Then, but you don't know the person to person. It's like, how many times can you say that you understand the abstract more than the actual thing? Oh, Constantly, for me, the abstract is infinitely more uh, relatable and understandable than the practical. I think that's different for me. I, I don't. It's yeah. yeah, and it's and it's only when I have to turn the abstract into the practical hmm. that I get. Re- so there's a number of like spiritual things that become a problem for me. Um, Patience. No, I got that, but it, more like when people say like like a personal relationship with Jesus, like oh. okay. Well, that's church. Abstract. It is. Yes. It's like abstractly. I know what you mean. It's like, so I pray and I read the Bible and I 
talk with friends about Jesus and stuff. It's like, I feel like that must be what it is, but that doesn't, when I think of the concept of a personal relationship, it doesn't look like that. You know, it's just, it's again, it's like trying to take the, the association I have, I personally have with an abstract concept and then trying to reconcile it with the association I have with a certain practical concept and putting the two together. It's very difficult. Um, but so, so to get back to this idea of, of forgiveness, you know, and that hopefully in talking about, in talking about these movies and this idea that these are characters who are, I certainly think that Locke is, uh, ends on a more optimistic note than affliction. Well, Nolte's lost to the world. I mean, we don't even know where he is. Yes, he, yeah. So, um, so I will, I'll, I'll refer to affliction when I say this, but like his character is basically doomed. Uh, and it is precisely because not only has he not forgiven his father and that's the thing is his father does not want forgiveness. His father does not, is not apologetic at all. And that can make it very difficult Mm -hmm. to forgive somebody. But again, forgiveness is not necessarily about them. It's about your reaction to them. So you can forgive somebody even if they don't want it. Um, but uh but Nolte's character is living in that unforgiveness, you know, which uh, sounds very like Dr. Phillish, mm-hmm. but like he is dwelling in that all the time. He is perpetually aware of the damage that has been done to him. And that is what is motivating every action. And after a while, I feel like that kind of bitterness, you know, looking at some of the ways it's been described here, you know, uh, Lee Strobel says bitterness is always a poison. Like it just, it just eats away at you. And I think it literally becomes the only thing that it, it, like I said, he's a character who is looking for definition and he can't find it anywhere. And then it's like, okay, no. So his definition is his father what has been done to him. And of course, what was done is terrible. Forgiveness is not, uh, to pardon somebody. It's not to, or pardon somebody's actions and say that they're excusable and that they're okay. It's just to say that these aren't who I am. And so, uh, you know, I think when we watch Locke and affliction, I feel like we have a very clear instance on both of them that like at the end of one, you have a character who has made a bunch of bad decisions, but at the end of it has come to a point where he's in a slight, in a, I think a notably more conciliatory place with this thing that has been following him in the backseat of his car for his entire life. And then the other character is completely lost at that point. Like there's nothing he can do. Um, and so uh, there are a couple Bible verses here. Um, Ephesians four, thirty-one and 32. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. And then Hebrews twelve, fourteen and 15. Make every effort to live it to live in peace with everyone and to be holy without holiness. No one will see the Lord see to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. So tall orders. Yeah, they are, you know, and that's the thing is like, 
we're not perfect. So what what what's interesting is the idea of not being perfect people is that we're going to be hurt because that person's not perfect and we're going to try And if we try to forgive them, we not, we might not be able to forgive them perfectly because we're not perfect. You know, it's just the way it happens. And so, but you know, if we look at the, if we look at the model of forgiveness, which is Christ, and we look at his forgiveness of us, like if we look at that first, I think that feeling like, Oh, thank like, thank God that he's done this for me. I like, I thought I was pretty unforgivable and you come to realize that like, there's no such thing as an unforgivable act. Now, some actions have consequences, you know, and to forgive somebody is not to say, excuse them from the consequence of their action. But it's saying that like, I don't hate you like for what you did. And you know, it's astounding to me that like, people who've had family members murdered by somebody will forgive the murderer. And I'm like, and I, and speaking of abstract and practical and versus practical, I look at that. I'm like, how do you come on? Right. What, what are we, what are you even talking about here? How do you even do that? This person that you loved is not in your life anymore because this person took them away Yeah. for no, for, you know, a completely horrible and selfish reason. Like how can you forgive that person? But it is possible. And, you know, and in the same way, like we are capable and some of us have probably done some pretty awful things in our lives, but we are still forgiven. Um, and so hopefully we can use that as inspiration to forgive those that have wronged us. Um, can you think of anything else? Uh, uh, any, any other good any other cappers uh, along this conversation? Yeah, I would say uh, <clears throat> if you're going to watch Affliction, have a Brady Bunch episode standing by, or a Walton's episode, <laughs> because you need you need balance. I guess I love Affliction. I think it's great. No, I'm not. I'm um, not downing it. But uh, it yeah, well it's done. it's it's a tough movie, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and Locke is too. I mean, that's like again, we talk about the stakes always being raised. Yeah. And when the stakes are always raised, then you're always going to be just very, uh, just tense and always aware of like, oh, this this is very frustrating to yeah. watch. Um, but they're both very good movies, and they very they really, I I feel like they. Cha- I mean, even with Locke, like you and I, kind of started with different interpretations, and I think we came to a place where I don't think we swayed each other to our side. I think we met somewhere in the middle, actually. Um, but like Locke is not an easy movie to comprehend. Like, like I said, it's very divisive and it, and it, and it has to do with all these very complicated things of like being wronged, making a mistake, taking responsibility, forgiving other people, what all of the, and how all of those things work together. And then affliction, you know, is an instance of like, this guy was clearly wronged by his father. Mm -hmm. Very much so. The question then is, now what? You know, because we have to believe that there is such a thing in this world as renewal and redemption because, you know, if not, then, I mean, you you know, based on your own story, like, you yourself are doomed. My father was doomed, yeah. you know, to do this thing because they are now broken beyond repair. But, you know, to 
get to probably another theme that uh, I wasn't planning on. Just, you know, God can repair and redeem even the most broken person, whether that person has broken themselves or somebody else broke them. Like, it's never too late. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll just stick with that. It's it's never too late. So, um, so okay. All that was very abstract. Sorry, everybody. Hopefully you enjoy the movies. Next week, Avengers. Don't worry. Whee! We're going to be just fine. So, uh, all right. So you can uh, find us on Facebook, and please like us on Facebook. You can follow me on Twitter, at More Lessons. Uh, are you on Twitter, Robert? I forget. I think. I don't know. Okay. Uh, and then uh, I would also, by the way, appreciate it uh, if uh, people could leave some some nice iTunes reviews. Uh, we haven't had a new one in a while, and that's a thing that I appreciate. Uh, I think that is about it. If you have any uh, questions, you can email me, tyler at morethanonelesson.com, or you can leave a comment on the post on the website. So I think that is about it. Uh, Robert, thank you for being here. You got it. Thanks. And uh, we'll get you next time. Bye. Bye.